Hey, your Bible should be open to Philippians 3. But I want to just give a little update. So what we're going to do here at South Beach Church is we're going to uh, go through our uh, text today. Next week, Pastor Adam will be here. And then the week after that, sometime in July 7th or something like that, July 10th, we're going to have the team, the six guys that went down to Mexico. They're going to come up and testify a little bit and share. Oh yeah, by the way, last announcement. Tomorrow night, men, men only. Tomorrow night, we're going to Calvary Chapel Corvallis right over the hill. Their first stake and study is happening uh, there at Calvary Corvallis. And I'm speaking, so pray for me that that would be anointed and powerful, and that if you want to attend, it's like 10 bucks or something, starts at 6 o'clock, a wonderful meal opportunity to also get in fellowship and in the Word. There'll be water baptisms happening tomorrow. It's going to be powerful at Calvary Chapel Corvallis, so put that on your calendars. Dudes, make it happen. That's probably the first time you've heard that announcement. You're like, I didn't even know. That's okay. We're, we're doing things the, the way that they do it, so it's happening tomorrow. We'll be over there, but in two weeks, we're going to have the trip, the guys that went on the trip up here to share. We're going to give them two weeks to recover from jet lag and all the rest. Here's how the trip went. On Friday, we met here at the church, and it was raining, which is, you know, exactly what you expect in late June, exactly what you expect in late June, and it rained the whole way down to Coos Bay, and it rained all the way down to past LA. It was the first time they'd seen rain in LA in 65 years. It was crazy, and we're like, we're from Oregon. You're welcome. You know, we brought that rain, and, and we just kept driving. I think that I was in the front seat with Pastor Adam going back and forth driving until 4 a.m. 4 a.m. was when I finally got in the back seat and went to sleep and woke up at 6.30 down in San Diego. We went to Denny's, you know, and just sitting there looking at these new people that were traveling with us, three vans. And then we crossed the border to Cate. And the first thing we did when we got to Mexico was we went to Carmen Sardon, which is a mission uh, down in kind of off the, or off the coast inland a little bit that the Applegate Christian Fellowship started about 30 years ago or so. And we just wanted to tour it. And I'm going to tell you what, as soon as we drove in, these three vans, dusty vans and all these gringos in there, some of the folks that lived there and worked there saw our vans coming in. And as soon as they saw us, I don't know if it was like unexpected, you don't really, you know, time travels a little differently down in Mexico and communication, and they began to just weep when they saw us coming in. And they gave us a tour of the facilities. This is where my wife, Crystal, she was an 18-year-old girl, and she spent three months down there ministering to the orphans, and I've taken a couple mission trips down there. But it had been about 15 or 16 years since I'd been down there. And as I walked around and saw all the smells and all the sights and all the sounds, and there's a bunch of orphans that live there. They've been living there this entire time. Man, it was so powerful. Now, I hadn't slept yet either, but I was on the verge of tears and holding tears back, and it was so powerful to see what God is doing down there. And one of the things that God spoke to my heart as we took this trip to Mexico, because we got to our actual place where we would be building and constructing. I'm going to be honest, I don't always listen to instructions perfectly, uh, pray for my wife. And so I don't always know what's going on, and I really didn't know what we were going down there to do. We were invited to go. I said, yeah, I'll go. And I didn't know what we were getting into. I really didn't know the details and maybe in your life, you don't really know the details. You think you do, but you don't. You don't know what God's calling you to do. You don't know what God has in store for you. You don't know the future exactly. And that can either be awesome or can be very difficult, depending on your trust level of the Lord. And as we got there to this site, they told us we're going to be building a church, or should I say putting a roof on this church. And I don't know how to put a roof on a church in Mexico. And most of the guys down there have construction experience that we took with us. But we were really just following the Lord, doing what he said to do one step at a time. And on that Sunday, we left on Friday, traveled all the way down there. On Sunday morning, we woke up at the site that we were staying at, sleeping in tents. And the Lord spoke to me. I'm just going to put this out there for you guys to chew on as well. The Lord spoke to me and said, Luke, I sent you down here to Mexico to put a church together, to put a roof on this church, to minister to these people who need ministry these folks who haven't been able to have their services protected by the sun in four years. They'd been roofless, not ruthless, roofless for four years. And the Lord spoke to me. He's like, isn't this cool, Luke, that you need a church too? Your roof leaks. When was the last time we saw our, our roof leak? It leaks here, doesn't it, you know? And most of you who go to church here, you know that we're being, uh, we have to leave this facility. We're trying to acquire land right now, trying to build our own church. And the Lord spoke to me. He said, Luke, I want you to build somebody else's church before you build your own. It's going to happen. It's going to be a miracle down here and up there. And it was such a sweet relief for the Lord to say, Luke, I brought this team down. I brought South Beach Church, a chunk of South Beach Church down here. James chapter 1 verse 27 says that pure and undefiled religion is to visit those in their time of need, orphans and widows, those who have less than us. And the joy and the fullness of heart for these men and women that we were able to meet. And I pray in Jesus' name one day you'll get to meet in the ensuing trips down to Mexico. And it was such a powerful time. I want to show you just one of these pictures. This is the church before the roof went on. This is day one. This is Sunday. We'll just pop that picture up there of the, the roofless church. There it is. 
And it had been in that condition for four years. Just leave that picture right there. You can see on the right hand, those trusses, one is up and one is down. We built those trusses out of steel that we had shipped in. And we were welding them together. When I say we, I mean other guys that know how to weld. I can like cheer them on and pray for them and stuff like that. And they were welding them together, but we had to put those trusses in place and then spin them up. All of this was very dangerous without any proper safety. Is anybody from OSHA here? Anyways, no, no proper safety gear, no hard hats, just prayer. And we continued to construct and it took six days. Go ahead and go to the next picture. There's inside, putting the trusses up and putting the purlings in. And I just keep going through here. There, the roofing begins to go on on day four, the roofing on top, and this is day six, the roof completely done. It's okay to clap. That's a picture of the team that did it on day five, and they finished the work on day six. And I'll tell you what, I was telling a few of my friends here at church that it was one of the best mission trips I've ever been on. I've been on at least a dozen or so mission trips in my life, and this was one of the best. It's the most recent, so that's probably why it's the best. But one of the reasons why it was one of the best is because I wasn't actually in charge. It was so awesome. I was in charge of a few things. I had to do three or four teachings during the time that I was there and lead my group. And, but one of the things that the Lord showed me is that it's just going to take faith and a little cooperation and he's going to do what he's promised to do. And when you're in that key leadership position or that key stressed out position or that key position that just wants to know it all, guess what? He's going to finish the work he began. He's going to do it. It just takes some faith and cooperation and God will do what only he can do. And I want to speak that word of encouragement to you in your marriage right now or in your ministry or in all the things going on in your life, how's it going to work out? What's going to happen next? He might not tell you how it's all going to work out. He might not tell you what's going to happen next. But what he would ask you to do right now is to trust the process. To trust the process and to step in to bringing your faithfulness into what God brings, which is his faithfulness, and letting him accomplish what only he can do. This roof had been off for four years. And in six days, it got assembled, it got put up. God's perfect timing. Reminded me of the book in Nehemiah, where Nehemiah received from God new revelation, new insight, a softened heart for an old situation. It had been this way forever. As a matter of fact, in Nehemiah's day, you guys know that the walls were down for 140 years. Some of you guys are 140 years old today. It looks like, you know what I'm saying? That's a long time, your whole life. And yet God put on Nehemiah, hey, let's go do it. And Nehemiah, by the way of God's provision, marched 900 miles all the way to Jerusalem. The Bible says he surveyed the land for three days. He didn't tell anybody what he was there for, just praying, wondering, is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? And you Bible students, you know that he began the work and he completed the building of the walls in how many days? Yell it out. Seven, Seven would be amazing. <laughs> More biblical. 52 days. 140 years the thing had been down and in 52 short days they were filled with conflict and pushback and setback and challenges and Nehemiah stayed the course. He was faithful and God did what only God could do in 52 days and the wall was completed up to half of its height. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 15. And I just want to encourage you guys at the beginning of the service today we're going to get into Philippians chapter 3 and see some instruction from Paul but that you would trust the Lord with whatever's going on in your life right now. If you're like me, you want to see the end from the beginning. I just want to see how it's all going to go. I want to know how the budget's going to work out. I want to know where the plans are. I want to know who I'm going to marry. I want to know where my kids are going to go. I want to know what's going to happen. And he's not showing you any of that. He asks you to come to him by faith and to trust the process. And I'll tell you what, God is going to do amazing things. I can't go into the story completely yet. You'll hear more of it as the weeks unfold. But the very last day that we were at uh, Manadero, we were staying at a house where all of our tents were set up uh, in the fields. They didn't tell us there were scorpions in the field, but we figured that out. We figured that out. And uh, so, <laughs> amongst other things. And so we're camping there for uh, the, the week that we were there. And the very last day, the Lord put on the hearts of some of the leadership down there to continue building in that area, not at the church, but at that compound. And God has called us down there to begin and partner with Riverview Christian Fellowship in the building of an orphanage. Um, there's some stories that we'll tell next Sunday, uh, not this Sunday, but I'll tell you what, God is doing amazing things down there. And only God can take your life one step at a time, one challenge at a time, one difficult 
difficulty at a time and then continue to be faithful to you and to change you into his image, but also to make sure that he gets his glory out of the process in your life, your marriage, your ministry, or what God is doing. So before we get into Philippians 3, I just want to pray a blessing on Manny Darrow, on the families, on the work that has begun, on that church service. I told a few people this morning, the church is located on a hill about like that, maybe like that, you know. It's pretty steep. And as you're getting up the hill there, I was working one day and I saw this guy walk up all the way from the bottom of the hill and he walked up real slow. This Hispanic guy, he's walking up and he had a weed whacker in his hand and a can of gas in his hand. He's just walking up so slow. And by the time he got to me, I said, hey, bro, you want some water, you know? I don't speak English, but he knew what water was. I said, hey, do you want some water? And he spoke some broken English. He said, yeah, I'd love some water. Thank you so much. And he looked at me and he looked at the church. He said, are you putting a roof on this church? And it doesn't even say church. I don't even know how he knew it. I said, yeah, we're putting a roof on this church. And he said, that's a good work. He said, this is the church that plays rock and roll and preaches the gospel. <laughs> I didn't know any of that. You know, I said, really? Cool. And he said, that's what this, that's, he said, I've never been to this church before. I work right around here. I've never been there, but I'm going to come to this church. I'm going to come to this church now. And we're praying that God would re- do a revival in that community. And that men, the men and women in that local area would see the love of God and would be saved and would be given purpose and value in their lives. So let's pray that in right now. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray for Pastor Juanito, Lord, and his dad Juan and the fellowship of believers there. We pray for Nubia, Lord, and Luis and, and Martin, Lord, and all the folks that we met. And in Jesus' name, would you bless them? Would you bless them right now in Jesus' name as they celebrate, Lord, in the cool, Lord, of the shade from that roof that just got put in place, from the love that was brought there, Lord, in Jesus' name from the states. And we ask that you would, Lord, speak that love to the community around them, and that you would do a work, Lord, of salvation in Manidero, Lord, in Ensenada, and all those places of extreme poverty, Lord. We thank you, God, for what you've done and what you're already doing. I thank you for the divine appointments, Lord, for the way you move powerully on our team, I pray for Daniel Fox, Lord, in the Riverview Fellowship, Lord, as they had a part to participate in that, Lord, and as you're moving in their hearts even today, solidify them and bless them, Lord. We thank you for the protection you gave us, Lord, in traveling internationally there and back, and we pray that our bodies would recover now as we've expended so much. Anything we've picked up along the way, Lord, would just be squashed in Jesus' name, and we thank you for all you've done, Lord, and today at South Beach Church, as we get into your word and get your word into us, may we be encouraged I thank you, Lord, for the visitors that are here with us. Would you bless them, Lord, and stoke their fire? I pray for the ones that are not with us this morning, traveling, just enjoying summer. Bless them. Lord, thank you for this school, for South Beach Christian School. Would you continue, Lord, to lead and guide this school and provide and put upon the hearts of those teachers we still need, Lord, and the moms and dads and the students, Lord, that you're still calling. Lord, would you bless them? Thank you for Newport Christian Church, Lord. Just pour your spirit on them this morning. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for all you've done, for all you want to do. Bless us now as we get into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Well, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. And it would appear that the church at Philippi was his favorite church. How many of you guys have multiple kids and you have a favorite kid? Trick question. Don't raise your hand. I tell my kids my favorite kid is our dog, just to, you know, so nobody gets mad, you know. In Paul, it would appear he had a favorite church. He started the church there. He wrote to the church in Thessalonica and the church in Corinth and the church in Rome and all these churches. But when he writes to the church at Philippi, he has no real words of correction. In chapter 4, he does mention two ladies that are kind of having a squabble. He's like, hey, ladies, figure that out before I get there. It's not a big deal. Just make sure and tighten it up. Other than that, it was the church of great joy. In four chapters, Paul uses the word joy 19 times joy or joyful. As we learned two weeks ago, this is because he had the mindset of heaven. Paul knew where he was going. It wasn't because everything was joyful. How many guys are still waiting for things to be joyful, to be joyful? How many guys are still waiting for things to be good, to to feel good? Man, get over that. Especially as you get older, things don't feel good anymore at all. And God gives you a choice to be joyful in the midst of this world. Listen, it's because your mind is set on heaven. It's because you have a mindset of eternity, not on the things of man that are temporary. And Paul's telling this church, encouraging them to do this. Two weeks ago when we were in Philippians, I intended to finish this chapter, but we got bogged down in verse 10, and we spent the entire time together in verse 10 of chapter 3. Let's read it again. I want you to see why we did that. Paul says that I may know him, number one, and the power of his resurrection, number two, and the fellowship of his sufferings. This is where the train falls off the tracks, being conformed to his death. This is where we ask to get off right away. And Paul says this, 
You know what life's all about? Knowing him. It really is all about that. Have you figured this out? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the Bible says that Adam and Eve knew God. They walked with him in the cool of the day. It was the best thing they had going for them. And Satan crept in in chapter 3 and began to tempt them for lesser things, for other things, for deviant things. So why don't you, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why don't you do this? And they fell prey to that temptation. Don't raise your hands. But how many of you guys feel pre, feel, fall prey to that temptation every single day? Well, I know the Lord. Duh. Of course he's God. Duh. Of course I'm going to heaven. Duh. But man, there's a lot of cool things down here I want to do. Have you done this before? Have you done that before? And have you gone here before? And if you're honest, you've done a lot of those things. And you fall prey to those things. And those things continue to lure you. But no matter how much of this world you experience, no matter how many things in this world you do, no matter how many things in this world you acquire, none of it will fully satisfy you as much as his presence. As much as him. The Bible says that in his presence, Psalm 16, is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the conquest. This is the challenge for you and for me is that we wouldn't be pulled astray, led astray by the things of this world. And Paul says, you know what I want to do? No matter what happens, I want to know him. Number one goal. And the fellowship, or should I say, in the power of his resurrection. I want to live powerfully now in this life. I want to know how to overcome sin and to do the things that God calls me to do. But I also don't want to fear death. I also want to make sure that when I get to the end of my race, I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. I have nothing to fear. And then he went on to say, also the fellowship of suffering. You who are seasoned saints and have gone through a thing or two, you've come to the realization that it's in those sufferings, those challenges, those difficulties, that the awareness of his thereness is more real than any other time. That it's not in the easy days, as much as I love the easy days, it's not in the easy times, as much as I love the easy times, it's in the suffering that if you would choose to look to the Lord, to receive from the Lord, to listen to the Lord, he's right there, right in front of your face, the fellowship of his suffering. And then finally, he talked about the being conformed unto his death, knowing that you and I, we're all going to die. Google it later, 10 out of 10 people are dying, okay? It's not new. And because we're all dying and we all resist this death, instead what God wants us to do is to not fear death. To not fear what anything can bring in this life because we have no fear because Christ has overcome everything. Look at verse 11. Let's get into some new territory. Because of these four things, look at verse 11. Paul says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Stop right there. Eyes up here. I believe this is a poor translation of what Paul is trying to say or what Paul did say in verse 11. I believe what Paul said in verse 11 in summarization is this, that no matter what I go through, I'm heading towards the resurrection from the dead. If by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. No matter what, if by any means, in other words, no matter what I have to go through, he had already told us that he had lost everything in verses 7 and 8, that I might know Christ. I've lost all of these things in my life. Why? So I could get to know him better and be closer to him. Now let me just say this gently, but also say it succinctly. God will allow you to go through whatever you need to go through, no matter what, if by any means, in order to get your heart. He loves your heart enough to break your bones. He loves your heart enough to allow your deck of cards, the things that you're hoping in, the things that you're looking for, the thing that you're resting in, to come to nothing in order that all you have left is him. I think it was Fanny Crosby or Corey Tenboom who said, Christ, you don't know Christ is all you need Someone finish it until Christ is all you have. I think that was Corey Ten Boom, who spent a portion of her life in a concentration camp, abused, suffering, stripped back from everything. And she realized, I have nothing now except that one thing I need, Jesus Christ. Now, I say that, again, with a warning on it, that God will allow you to go through anything and everything in this life in order that he might teach you this lesson. One of my favorite stories is in John 11. It's a crazy story. And in John 11, Jesus is given the news that his friend Lazarus is sick. You remember the story? And instead of popping right up and running to save Lazarus like we expect Jesus to do when we have need, Lord, I have a problem. My marriage is in trouble. My business is in trouble. My health is in trouble. Jesus, when he received this word about Lazarus, what did Jesus do? Starts with N and rhymes with Ada. That's Spanish. Sorry, guys. It starts with nothing. He did nada. And he sat there for one day, for two days, for three days. And his disciples were like, Jesus, don't. What? 
Until finally Jesus said, oh, let's go. And so Jesus then walks to Lazarus' house and some messengers come to him and say, hey, bro, it's too late. I don't, know, I don't know why you waited, but Lazarus is dead now. And when Jesus got to this scene, Mary and Martha, both the brother and sister, the sisters of Lazarus, they both told Jesus they weren't impressed with him. They went to Jesus and said, hey, good to see you, man. We called you like three days ago, bro. To quote them exactly, they said, if you would have come when we asked you, Lazarus wouldn't be dead. And you guys know the shortest verse in all the Bible is John eleven thirty five. The Bible says, with Mary and Martha, Jesus wept. He cried with him. He was broken with him. He could have prevented this disaster. He could have prevented this hardship. He could have prevented this difficulty. But instead, Jesus did not. He actually, I'm going to say it in the clearest way. He articulated it. He orchestrated it. And yet he was right there weeping with them. And then Jesus looked at Mary and Martha. And they were beginning to kind of comfort themselves. And Jesus mentioned the resurrection. And I think it's Martha. Martha says to Jesus, yeah, 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 yeah. I know. My brother's going to rise again from the dead. I know. I know, I know. And Jesus said, no, I am the resurrection and the life. And he looked at Martha in the eyes and said, do you know this? Do you believe this? She said, I believe. It was in that moment that Jesus then brought the miracle forth and said, roll away the stone, get that guy out of there. And you who've read this in your King James language know that they challenged Jesus and said, Lord, behold, he stinketh. Isn't that sometimes the way we look at our own lives? The Lord begins to work. We're like, Lord, it's too late, bro. My marriage is so messed up. Maybe it even ended in divorce for you. My health is so messed up. They think, Lord, it stinks, bro. What's going on in my life? What happened to me? And let me just help us to understand. Paul would say it this way. By whatever means that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. No matter what. Because God forbid that you gain the whole world and lose your own soul. There's such a temptation to hold everything together, gather all you can, and can all you get and sit on the can, just get it all put together. And if you lose everything, if bankruptcy hits you or failure hits you or divorce hits you or disease hits you, oh no, it's the worst. Is it? Is it? Paul's writing this epistle of joy, chained to a Roman guard 24-7. Paul has been accused of things he didn't do. He's awaiting a trial that would not go his way. He eventually will be killed by Caesar Nero. And yet Paul says in verse 11, he says, but if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, that no matter what I go through, if God would get attention, my attention and my heart, it's worth it. I had to ask myself a bunch of questions traveling down to Mexico. As we got further and further down there, we had to start making our own gas. It was so expensive. Yeah. That, I mean, it was crazy. It's so expensive. And we're driving three vans. We're, I mean, all these guys and gals driving down to Mexico. It's a big deal. Why are we doing this? Why are we wasting these resources? Shouldn't we do things more efficiently? And shouldn't we do things blah, 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 blah? And the Lord says, trust me. Trust me. I'm for you, not against you. My ways aren't your ways, Luke. I do things differently, and no matter what's happening in your life, you can trust the Lord and say, Lord, have your way. Am I being brought nearer and dearer to this reality that the resurrection from the dead is all that matters? Maybe that's exactly what the Lord's doing in your life right now. Because the idea of suffering, the idea of difficulty, it's a touchy subject, isn't it? As a matter of fact, some people in this world reject Christianity altogether because of the suffering in this world. You ever heard this argument before? If God was good, then why is there suffering in this world? It's not a bad question. You got to have a biblical worldview, an understanding of how the world is put together right now from Genesis to Revelation. Why are there 29,000 children every single day starving to death? Well, that's the stat. Today, 29,000 children will die of hunger-related diseases. Does that, doesn't God know what's happening? What about in your own life? Man, I got married and I got this thing coming together. And I did everything right and it ended up not going the way I planned. 
I gave everything to this ministry and it got weird and I gave everything to this relationship and it got weird and we look at suffering and it's a very touchy subject. But when you understand that suffering is one of God's main tools, primary tools to get his way done in your own heart. By the way, don't go looking for suffering. Amen? Okay? The, the check's already in the mail. It's been sent to you. Direct deposit. God has all the suffering order for you. Just learn to process it and endure it according to God's glory and for others' good. And I'll tell you what, Paul here saw things differently. He saw that death and suffering was not a disruption in our lives, but it was the very beginning of eternal life. And if you trust the Lord in that way, things will be different for you. Guys, look at verse 12. Paul may be fearing that he's using some strong words, his preacher voice, standing up on a stage. He says, hey, hey, guys, calm down, calm down. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Paul humbles himself right now as he's giving these directives to the church of Philippi. He's like, hey, guys, not that I've already attained it. I'm not even satisfied or proud of where I'm at. And can I just say I relate to Paul and I'm thankful that Paul humbles himself at this point and says, I don't even, I don't even know where I'm at. I haven't attained it yet. I'm still going. I still have things to learn. I still have things that God wants to do in my life and things that God wants to strip away from my life. Raise your hand if you haven't already attained it. You're not already there yet. I think this is imperative that moms and dads and leaders and pastors and teachers are the first ones to admit, man, I don't have it all figured out. Because when you get around teachers and superiors and moms and dads, sometimes there's that fear complex. Like, oh, this guy knows everything. This gal knows everything. No, no. Paul says, I have not attained it, nor do I pretend. Not that I've already attained or already perfected. He goes on then, instead of camping there and having a pity party, he says, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Stop right there, eyes up here. Paul says, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm glad I'm not where I used to be. And I'm also excited that I'm not where I'm going to be. How am I going to get there? By pressing on. By laying hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid a hold of me. I want you guys to get familiar with verse 12. He says, I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing toward those things which are ahead. Stop right there, eyes up here. Paul says something that's theologically true, but also practically powerful. He says, I press on. To the things ahead. I forget the things behind because I have not yet apprehended that, listen, for which Christ has apprehended me. Did you know that Christ created each and every one of you for good works and in his image for his purposes? Every single one of you. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 that you were saved not of works, but it was through grace by faith lest anyone should boast. It's a gift of God, man. We've been saved. And then it goes on to say in order that we would do the things that God has set us out to do. You were saved on purpose. His purpose. But you were saved for a purpose. And Paul confesses, I have not laid hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Let me ask you a question before we move on through this verse. Why did God make you? What's your purpose? There might be a number of things that come to your mind. You might have a whole legal pad, just all these things. Maybe you're a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife. Maybe you're a ministry leader, a son or a daughter, a brother or a sister. I'm going to ask a question again. I want you to think about it. Why did God create you? For some of you, answers come instantly and quickly. Maybe for some of you, there's anxiety in that question. Like, ah, uh, 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 uh. When was the last time you spent time with the Lord, checking in with him, saying, Lord, write your will on the tablet of my heart? When was the last time, instead of looking at your past testimony, you said, Lord, what's my, what's my current testimony? What are we doing? This is Paul in jail. And he's saying, not that I've apprehended it. Not that I've achieved it yet, but I lay hold. I'm going after verse 12 again. I want you to see this. He says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Guys, gals, listen, please. This is imperative because Christ didn't make you arbitrarily or generically or accidentally. The world wants you to believe that, wants you to think that God made you on purpose for such a time as this. 
And within your broken nature, within your fallen nature, within your selfish nature, we abdicate that responsibility to other people. I'll just let them do it. I'll just let them change the community. I'll just let them serve the church. I'll just let them take, take the charge. I'll let them go to Mexico. I'll let them fund the school. I'll let them volunteer in Sunday school. I'll let them be a light in their house. I'll let them do a life group. I'll let them do things. I'll tell you what, this mission trip was so cool because I wasn't in charge. I'll just let them be in charge. Why has the Lord created you? This isn't designed to be a condemning question, by the way. But to be a confirming question. Why am I here? What does the Lord want to do through me? What has the Lord done in me? What is the Lord doing around me? Paul goes on and he gives us a clue though. He says, I press on. That's an active verb. It's an adjective of not a passivity, but an activity. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not, verse 13, count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, and I love Pastor Paul, because instead of giving us one thing he does, he gives us two things. He says, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind me and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Stop right there, eyes up here. Pastor Paul, one thing you got to do. Number one, and then he gives us two things. First thing he says is forgetting those things behind me. How many of you guys have a past? Things that you wish you wouldn't have done. Things that constantly come up and haunt you. The Bible says that the accuser of the brethren day and night accuses us. He'll bring those things from your past. Paul says, you know what I do about my past? I forget about it. I have to forget about it in order to move forward, in order to lay hold of that which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Why am I here? I can't stay in the past. And by the way, this could be a negative past that you must relinquish to the Lord, leave at the cross. And can I say something to a, a group of other folks? This might also be successes of your past. Oh man, I've been in Mexico back in 1982. Oh, I, did, I did stuff one time. I've done things and what happens in our past, our past can then confuse what God is doing in our future and it can cloud our judgment. Paul says, I forget my past. See, Paul had done things that were contrary to the cross, contrary to Christ, contrary to Christians, contrary to the church. He had done things. I got to forget that stuff. This is going to be a challenge for you moving forward. History tells us that when Peter would show up to certain circles, Peter had a past as well. Peter denied the Lord. And on this third denial, the rooster crowed. History tells us that when Peter would show up to certain circles, people in order to mess with him would, would say this when he would show up to the room. I don't know if that's true or not, but that sounds crazy. It's what the enemy does to me and the enemy does to you, though. Those things of your past that you've failed to do right, those things that you were supposed to do wrong, right, but you did wrong. He says, I'm forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. He says, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ in Christ Jesus the Lord. Paul says, two things I do. One thing I do, I forget the things of the past, but I press forward to the things of the future. This idea of reaching means activity, not passivity. I'm doing things. You guys are doing this, by the way. Sunday morning, it's a beautiful day. I'm going to get you out of here as soon as I can. But Paul says, I am continuing to move forward. I'm showing up early. I'm staying late. I'm saying yes to everything. I'm in the Bible. I'm repenting of my sins. I'm walking in fellowship. I'm letting my light shine before men. I'm doing good deeds that people would see my faith. I'm letting the Lord use me. And this is a lifestyle. It's not a one-time event. Paul says, I press on. One of the things that I was able to see the Lord do on this last trip is that no matter what the day brought, no matter what was going on here or in the States, the Lord kept telling me, Luke, just trust the process. Just keep showing up. Keep pressing in. It's going to work out. There's lots of doubts, lots of fears, lots of reasons why I didn't think this was going to happen. I had no idea what was about to happen. And the Lord gave me this peace that passes understanding. Just to keep showing up. Keep pressing in. You're going to finish. There's going to be success. Why? Because there's promises of God. Because he's for us, not against us. Because it's actually not about you or me and our successes or our weaknesses. Is that not good news? And God has given to us the desires of our heart. Yet I want to encourage you this morning in your marriage or in your ministry or in your relationships to keep pressing forward. Keep reaching out. Verse 14, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What prize and what goal and what call has God put on your heart? Keep going. 
Keep showing up and trusting that only the Lord can do what God has called you to do. It might not be easy. There might be some challenges. I recently heard a story of a young boy in the 1900s, 1917 thereabouts. Him and his brother were in charge of heating their school where they met. And so early in the morning, he and his brother would go light the kerosene lamps. And some of you guys have heard the story. His name's Glenn Cunningham. And as he got to the school that day, somebody had switched out the kerosene with gasoline. And so when they lit that lamp there to heat the school, it exploded. And this young boy, Glenn Cunningham said his eyes burned and he couldn't see. And next thing he heard was, I'm burning, I'm burning. And he looked up to see his brother was fully engulfed in flames. And he looked down and he was in flames as well. True story. And he woke up in the hospital later and he heard the doctor whispering to his mom that his brother had died. He was laying there in bed wondering what to do. And the doctor whispered to his mother, he's going to die too. And so Glenn Cunningham made a decision that day, not being able to talk and not even knowing he was conscious, he made a decision, I'm not going to die. I don't want to die. And so he lived. A couple days later, the doctor said, well, somehow he lived. We don't know how that happened, but there's no way his legs will ever work again. They're burned too badly. We must amputate his legs. Glenn overheard the doctor saying this and he wanted to keep his legs even though they didn't work anymore and the doctor was able to be pushed back by mom and dad. Somehow they advocated for him, said no, don't amputate, don't amputate. His legs were kept and through many weeks and months of rehabilitation, his mom and his brothers and other sisters would massage his legs and tend to his wounds as his skin was completely burned off, losing all of his kneecaps and shins and three inches off one of his legs. His legs were done forever. The doctor whispered to his mom, he'll never walk again. And Glenn made a decision that day. He said, you know what? I, I want to walk again. I'm going to walk again. After he recovered and was in a wheelchair for many, many months, he asked his mom to push him out to the yard. And so he pulled himself out of his wheelchair and landed on the ground and crawled to the white picket fence. Pulled himself up. And begin to walk with his hands in a circle around the yard. So many times going around the circle dragging his dead legs. Trying to get that will to stand again until finally there was a groove in his yard. He pulled himself up and through the aid of other instruments and help he eventually learned to stand. His legs began to get stronger and he not only learned to stand he began to walk. People would make fun of him. He was deformed. Things didn't look right. He began to walk against all as he pressed on. He began to walk. Not only did he begin to walk, he began to run. He began to run so well that he actually joined the track team. True story. He began to run so well that he eventually went to the Olympics as a runner. And in 1917, he set the world record for the fastest mile ever ran, just over four minutes. Against all odds. Everything had been taken, a horrible accident, a horrible tragedy, a difficulty. And may we all have that same Pauline desire to press on. Or like Glenn Cunningham, who said, no, I want to keep going. Was it easy? No. Was it painful? Yes. Was there loss? Absolutely. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Verse 15, Paul says, therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Also pastoral here. This is the right mindset for mature Christians. That's what he says. Those who are serious. Those who want to go. Those who want their lives to count. Those who want the Bible to be their guidebook. They live in a world that has gone dark and gone mad. They live in a time and a season where the world calls evil good and good evil. <laughs> we lost our way. This is crazy. And Paul says, you know what I want you to do? Mature Christians have this mindset. Press on. Press on to the upward call of the goal in Christ Jesus. Don't give up. But it feels like I'm paralyzed. It feels like I'm all burned out. It feels like I'm all alone. It feels like I'm dead. It feels like Lazarus in the tomb. It feels like this. It feels like this. It feels like this. Yep. Yep. Don't give up. 
Don't give up. Paul also says, and if anything you think otherwise, verse 15, God will reveal even this to you. Paul says, hey, mature Christians, this is your mindset. Immature Christians, guess what? God will show you. He'll show you. That's a good word for mature Christians who get mad at immature Christians. Okay? Don't do it. You got somebody in your life that's not quite there yet, somebody there who's struggling with something, somebody who's not up to speed with you. Guess what? God will show them. Because if you count yourself as a mature Christian today, it's because God showed you. God will show you. Let this mind be in you who are mature. And if you don't see it this way, that's okay. Man, as a leader, as a pastor, this gives me so much relief and comfort that I don't need to argue with every single person and convince every single person to see it my way. I don't need to do that. I can't do that. The Lord will show you. The Lord will show them. The Lord will show us. The Lord will show me. The Lord will show us. She goes on in verse 16. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule or mind and let us be of the same mind. Stop right there, eyes up here. Paul ends this directive of, guys, I want you to get after it. I want you to press on. I don't want you to be a divider. I don't want you to have all these things. I want you to make sure that you're attaining to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But most of all, I want you to just trust the process. Paul's a peacemaker here. God will figure this out for us. Verse 16. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same mind and let us be of the same mind. Can that be our goal at South Beach Church? Let's keep pressing in. Let's keep moving on. But let's be of the same mind. Let's trust the Lord. Let's not divide. Let's trust him that God began a good work in us and will be faithful. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. To finish the work until the day of Christ Jesus. God has a plan for us. We don't have to be anxious about anything. And in so doing, you'll be like lights shining in a dark world. Right now, is your life upside down? Is it, is it tipped over? Is there challenges and difficulties? Is there reason to freak out? Is there reason to act out? There probably is. Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it. Instead, Let's be of the same mind and the same rule. Verse 17, in the last few verses, we're going to finish up this chapter. As I promised, I promised many times before, but as we're going to do today, verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Paul actually puts himself out there and says, just do what I'm doing. Note my pattern. Follow after me. And listen, guys and gals, follow other men and women who are also noteworthy of following. We're kind of impacted easily by men and women who are in leadership above us, are we not? And so what Paul says here is pick the people you're following carefully. Find some guys and gals that are a little bit ahead of you. Find some people that you can look to as examples and say, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like that gal. He'll give us a warning in just a verse or two saying, but be careful, not everyone's worth following after. Not everyone's going the same direction in the same place that you want to go. But he says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us as a pattern. Do you have a handful of men and women in your life you look up to? You might not know them. They might be authors or pastors or they might be singers or they might be people who have died and gone before us. One of my favorite authors is Charles Spurgeon. He's the Prince of Preachers. He writes a book called Lectures to My Students. Lectures to My Students. I've been reading this book for 20 years over and over and chapter at a time and just going back as a reference because C.H. Spurgeon gives what I need. He gives it to me exactly how I need it to challenge me, to inspire me, to encourage me. Do you have men and women like that in your life? I'll ask a different question. Do you see yourself as a man or a woman in other people's lives in that way? Maybe not perfectly, maybe imperfectly, maybe immaturely, but in order that the Lord would use you in that way to guide others. He goes on and gives us a warning. He says, for many, verse 18, walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Stop right there, eyes up here. Paul gives us a warning. He says, not everybody's worth following after. There are some people out there. That their citizenship is not in heaven, but it's on earth. Their God is their belly. In other words, they're here for sensuality. They're here for experiences. They're here for social status. They're here for things that are horizontal, not vertical. Now, let's just be honest. We all fall into that trap from time to time. Amen? Our citizenship is in heaven. Our location, it's earth. I'm an earthling. I don't know about you guys, but I'm here. I'm from here. 
but my citizenship is in heaven. I'm not staying here. My roots can't grow down here. My belongings, everything I have can't be here. It's it got to be more than this. And Paul says, there is a group of people, verse 18, many who walk whom I've told you and now tell you even weeping that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. How do you become an enemy of the cross of Christ? There's two ways. Both are ditches outside of the truth. The road is here. Ditches are here. One Paul's already shown us earlier in this chapter, and those are the ditch of legalism. Men and women who are so high and mighty, so spiritual, so sophisticated, so dedicated, they don't need the cross of Jesus. They just need more religion. These were the Judaizers of Paul's days. Paul labeled himself as one of those guys until he got saved. He said, man, I was the best of the best of the best. I didn't need Jesus until I met Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Man, I'm pretty good compared to who? The 11 a.m. service, you know, or whoever. We compare ourselves to all these different people in life. And then Paul, who was the best, he said, I'm the best. And he met Jesus Christ. He said, oh, wow, I'm way off. That's an enemy of Christ, enemy of the cross, legalizers. But here specifically, he doesn't say just legalism. He says there's liberalism. This is the other ditch, the other side of the road. How do you become an enemy of the cross? By being too liberal. By not treating what you do as what the Bible says it is, which is sin. Instead, you label it something, you give it a different title, you give it a different little framework, you give it a group over here, and you find somebody who sympathizes, empathizes, and affirms with whatever your sin is, and we all have sins. And when we don't take our sins, imperfections, and inadequacies, and call them what they are, we become enemies of the cross. I would say, though, you know what Paul says about these guys? He weeps. He weeps that there are men and women who are anti-Christ according to their actions, whose God is their belly, whose end is destruction, who live for the earth only and what they want here instead of their citizenship in heaven. And I would say this, you and I probably have similar beliefs, similar convictions because we're reading the same book. But may we all have a softened heart toward every single person who thinks differently than what this book says. And may God forgive us for being prideful, for being arrogant, for being vindictive towards any other group that thinks differently than we do. Paul says, I weep. When Paul went to the Oropagus there in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, the Bible says he was stirred in his heart when he saw that the city was given over to idols. And so what did he do? He gave himself over to that city. He went into their marketplaces. He went into their synagogues. He went into their gathering places and he preached Jesus to them. And may the Lord convict and forgive us in those areas where we have identified groups that are enemies of the cross. Pfft, easy. Where we haven't wept for them. Don't let your righteousness, don't let that right standing that you have a God with God or the knowledge of God lead you to that place where you're arrogant and high and mighty. But Jesus tells us, stay on the road that leads to the cross. Watch out for those two ditches. Verse 20, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how Paul and Peter and John and James all were waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. This was first century Christianity. Jesus had ascended and he said, I'll be back. That was his promise. I'll be back. And when they wrote their letters, they said, man, the, the Savior's going to appear. It's been a couple thousand years now because God is gracious and patient. But the Bible says it'll be just like the days of Noah before the Lord returns. The things will be cray cray at next level. And there will be signs and wonders and prophecies happening right before he returns. And we are living in those days where all arrows and all markers are pointing to the very soon return of Jesus Christ. And there are no more prophecies left to fulfill for Jesus to return. They're all ready. Our citizenship is in heaven, not here on earth. Verse 21, he goes on talking about Jesus who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. In your King James Version, it says he's able to subdue your vile body to a glorious body. Tames it up a little bit in the New King James. Your lowly body. How many of you guys have a vile, lowly body? <laughs> These bodies are all messed up. And if you're young, you're like, it's not that bad. Just wait. Just wait. And you're like, it'll never happen, dude. It'll happen faster than you think. Boom, it's over. And as the bodies fail, and as things that used to be where they should have been, they're no longer there. It's God's promise. It's the same, I'm just getting you ready. Just loosening up the roots to replant you. 
and when things fail and when things suffer. I mean, what was Paul talking about when he said this? Who will transform our vile body, our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Paul, Pastor Paul, encouraging his church, shepherding his church, instructing his church, saying, guys, it's not about here. It's about heaven to come. Don't believe the hype. Note those people who are worth following. And guys, forget the things of the past. Press on. Keep going. And you maybe feel handicapped in your spirituality. You maybe feel like you're never going to walk again in your spirituality. You maybe feel like you've lost everything in your spirituality. The Lord says, don't quit. Be like Glenn Cunningham, who was supposed to die, who was never supposed to walk again, who lost everything, and yet set a world record because God put deep within him a dream. Would you guys bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your great grace in our life, Lord, your great mercy. And I pray a blessing upon our church in Jesus' name. Lord, your church, the church, up and down the Oregon coast, Lord, all the way down to Mexico, all the way up to Canada, all the way up and down, Lord, in Jesus' name, everywhere we are gathered together. The Bible says we're two or more there. You're in their midst. And I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would honor us and bless us with that great grace, Lord, continued stick to to do the things you've called us to do. And maybe you're here this morning and you're just lazy or you're lethargic or you're apathetic or uninvolved in the things of God, and God's called you to do greater things, and you would just simply say, Lord, here am I, send me. If that's you, would you just raise up your hand right now if you want to surrender your life to Jesus? Maybe again, you're a Christian. Maybe for the first time, you're a non-Christian, saying, I want to be a Christian this morning. Just raise up your hand right now. Surrender your life. Paul would write to the church at Philippi, say, surrender, press on, forget the things of the past. My hand is up to you, Jesus. If you want to press on to the things that matter most, put up your hand right now in Jesus' name. Lord, I put my hand up too. I want to press on to the things that matter most. Forgive me of my sins. I pray, Lord, you would scan our hearts right now. If you want the Lord to scan your heart and just show you, maybe something you need to set down, something you need to let go of in your life, something you need to do away with and walk away from in Jesus' name, repent of. Lord, you're bringing things to my mind right now, and I repent of those things in Jesus' name. And I ask, Lord, that I'd make room for you, the thing that matters most. For my citizenship is not on earth, but it is in heaven. You can put your hands down. Lord, I thank you so much for your love for us. That your love doesn't change based on our performance, Lord, or our, our goodness. But it is based on who you are. And as we go out now, would you let that light so shine before us. Help us to see people as you do. Those who think differently are more immature than us. Hey, help us to bless them. To be a peacemaker, to walk with them. And we pray, Lord, you take our lives. You use them for your glory. Thank you for all you've done. We commit our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said... Amen and amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Go out into the world. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't forget all the events that are happening this week at South Beach Church with the middle schoolers and the high schoolers and all the things that are coming up soon. God bless you. Keep walking with him. He's for you, not against you. You are dismissed.